Good morning, everyone, and happy Mother's Day to all the mothers this morning. Um, may the screams be lessened and um, the fits be minimized. Um, and maybe the dads can help out extra today <laughs> for, the, for the sake of the mother. Yeah, can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? Okay, um, well, it's just a joy to be with you all, even though it's raining outside. It's um, always a blessing to come together. And I was thinking about it this morning. You know, what we do here every Sunday can feel so ordinary sometimes. It can feel so mundane. But at the same time, it's very extraordinary, very supernatural. Um, can you feel it? <laughs> you know, we're coming together to worship the God of the universe, not only so that we can be changed, but that we can give and ascribe glory to Him. And God promises to meet with us when we gather, when we come together to worship Him. So if you want to stand with me, um, and we'll remember that as we do our call to worship this morning, taken from Psalm 111, if you want to stand with me. Um, We'll begin, I'll read the bold section, if you'll read after me, uh, the non-bold. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in him. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Amen. If you want to remain standing and turn to hymn number three, we'll sing, Holy, Holy, Holy.
Good morning. In our confession of sin today, you may have picked up on you may have picked on up on this if you're reading through the ESV. Uh, we've got this in the NASB this morning, and Kendall's going to point out why he's he's chosen this particular version. But it reads in the NSCB, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. If you would all pray with me the prayer of confession. Heavenly Father, holy and awesome is your name. You are high and lifted up. Yet we, in our sin, we trust in our own way, our own works, our own way of salvation. Forgive us, Lord. For the sake of Christ, when we trust in ourselves, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, remind us of your great forgiveness. Amen. You please turn with me to In Christ Alone in your handout.
Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. His uh, sisters, Mary and Martha, are obviously upset. So they're there to minister to them. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Heavenly Father, thank you for the promise and the assurance that we have in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the resurrection that has happened and that continues to happen in each of us as we come to know you as Lord and Savior. Father, continue to work in us as we go out into the world and as we meet uh, those who are yours but maybe not know it yet. May they sense your spirit speaking to their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now this is, uh, this is a little long, but I, I think it's important. I think we should all read this together, the Nicene Creed. We've talked a lot about the, the creeds. We've talked a lot about uh, catechisms. Um, this is one of the early ones from the very beginning. And uh, if you'd read along with me, uh, just, think, just think about being there in the first, second century where, where they came up with this and, and shared with each other and encouraged one another with these words. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism with remission of sins and look for the resurrection of the dead. 
and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning again. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, we'll be continuing our study through the gospel according to John. Last week we sort of did more of an overview. We looked at the theology of John's gospel, some of the major themes in John's gospel, and we looked finally at sort of the thesis statement of John's gospel, that he wrote these things not just to puff us up with knowledge or to um, give us Jesus as merely a good example, but he wrote these things so that we might believe, so that we might believe not only that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, fully man, truly man, but also that we might believe he is the Son of God, God incarnate, and that by believing we might have life in his name. And so we kind of looked at John's prologue, the first 18 verses, just sort of as a way we saw these themes not only in the prologue, but throughout the gospel, and we'll see some more of those themes this morning. But this morning we're going to look at one verse, <laughs> and you might be saying, Kindle, this study's going to take a while, <laughs> and it might. We won't go this slow um, every time, but we're, this first verse is very important. It's critical um, to get this verse right and to see why it's so important, and I think some of us are so familiar with some of maybe the other Gospels, how they start, they begin with Jesus' birth, with the incarnation, maybe they go back a little bit further to John the Baptist or the wise men. And so we might be familiar with some how some of those other Gospels begin. But John here this morning takes us back even before those other Gospels. Before Matthew, before Mark, before Luke. He takes us back to before even the beginning of time itself. And I think for some of us... We've read this verse so often, we've become so familiar with it, and my fear is that it loses some of its meaning, right? We can almost say it without even thinking. And this morning we're going to try to take a step back to really break down what's happening in verse 1 of John's Gospel. And, and I think it's almost helpful, to, as Daryl said with the, with the creed this morning, to do the same thing, is to put ourselves in the shoes of the hearers of John's Gospel. That this was written in the first century, and these words, all these things, other things that we have, creeds, confession, explaining a lot of Christology, who Jesus is, they weren't there then. And these words from John are speaking into that context where there wouldn't have been a lot of clear thought, there would have been a lot of confusion about who Jesus is, who, who he was, and what he came to do. And so we can try to put ourselves in the shoes of John hearers, but I hope more than that, we'll see this morning that these words in John's gospel are immensely practical. And they might not seem like that on the surface, but they are extremely beneficial to how we live our lives every day as Christians. So I'll read the passage this morning, I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll look at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for, for your word, for Holy Scripture, which is your special revelation to us, that we, we, we could not know anything about who you are, about your salvation that you've promised for us without your holy word, and so we thank you for it. And this morning, as we look at John chapter 1, verse 1, there are many deep and mysterious truths contained in it, and our fallen three-pound brain cannot comprehend them. So this morning, we need the power of your Spirit to take the scales off of our eyes, the heart of stone that would cause us to not see the great truths of of John 1 this morning, may you give us a heart of flesh that we would understand, that we would comprehend, and that even if we can't fully comprehend, that we would confess that the Word is not only with God, but is God. And may we believe and have life this morning. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. I was thinking about it as I was studying this week. Um, maybe your kids have asked you difficult questions. Um, some of us have kids that are younger, and so sometimes they ask us these hard questions, like maybe the, some of the simple ones are like, why is the sky blue, Dad? Or, you know, where do people go when they die is a little bit of a harder one. <laughs> this morning, I had a bit of an episode with my four-year-old. <laughs> uh, I won't go into the full story, but I didn't answer that question very well. <laughs> she asked a difficult question about what happens, and... Um, I was maybe a little bit more blunt than I should have been, and that resulted in a little bit of crying and stuff. If you want to ask me about, if you want to ask me about that later, you can. But, but it's difficult, right? These questions that are not so easy to answer are difficult to, to, to give the right answer and to do it in a way that is able to be understood. And it's interesting, in John's Gospel, and especially in this prologue, some of the simplest Greek is used to explain. Some of the simplest Greek that you can use is used to explain what John is going to say this morning. And really in the whole prologue, if you go to seminary, some of the first verses they give you to translate are these verses because of how simple the Greek is, the words. But at the same time, and it's the same way when we answer our kids' questions that are difficult, even though the answer might be simple or we put it in simple language, it still communicates deep and profound truth. And I think we'll see that this morning as we look at John 1, verse 1. That <laughs> what John is trying to communicate is very difficult to explain. <laughs> but he's going to tell us at the same time very profound truth using simple language yet communicating great and deep things. And so the summary of what we'll look at this morning, there's really three clauses is what we could call them. Three sections of verse one, A, B, and C, or what we'll say this morning is we'll see that the word is eternal. We'll see that the word is distinct. And finally, we'll see that the word is divine. We'll see the eternal word, the distinct word, and the divine word this morning. So first we'll look at the eternal word. And we'll see that in the first clause or the first section of verse 1. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. And as I said already, John takes us back 
before Matthew, before Mark, before Luke, before the birth of Christ, before John the Baptist, before creation itself, he takes us back to the beginning. In the beginning. And our Old Testament sirens should be going off. (laughs) Right? In the beginning. What should that remind us of in the Old Testament? The very first words in the Old Testament. Namely, Genesis 1, verse 1, where we have the very same words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created. The first words in the Old Testament are the first words that John uses. In the beginning. He's taking us back before the incarnation, before Abraham, before David, before Moses, before time itself. John is taking us back to the very beginning. Why does he do this? Well, because of the next part. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. That the Word, in the beginning, already was. Not that the Word came into existence, not that the Word was created in the beginning, but that in the beginning, the Word already was. That however far back you want to push the beginning part, you know, we could talk about how old is the earth, how old is the universe, all those scientific things. That's not what John's trying to say. He's saying, however far back you want to push that beginning, the Word was already there before the beginning. He's saying that the Word is eternal. This is one of the themes that we talked about last week. It was theme number one, actually, the pre-existence of the Word. That's a fancy phrase for saying the Word already existed. And even that the Word did not come into existence, but that the Word was eternal, pre-existent, not created, not like us. We are created. We have a beginning. We come into being, right, when we... Mother's Day, right? We're born. We are created beings. John is trying to show us that the word here is not. The word is eternal. And he uses a very interesting word here. He uses the word. You might say that's kind of odd. Why does it say, in the beginning was the word? Many of us are familiar that this word is referring to the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. As we read in John's Gospel, we see it's revealed that this word is the Son of God. But why does John use the word, the word? (laughs) That's confusing. In the Greek, that word is logos, the word. Logos, the word. So why does John use that word here? Why does he use logos? Why does he use the word here? He's trying to communicate something about the word. Not only to his audience then, but to us now. He's trying to communicate something about this word. And the first thing he's trying to communicate is that this word is speech. This logos is speech. It is revelation. It is revelation. It is speech. It is the word. It is logos. The Son of God is God's revelation to his people. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 1. What does it say? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So we see that continued, that this logos is speech. This logos is revelation. It's about who God is. 
and what he came to do, this salvation that God has brought. And so that's not the only reason John uses that word. He also uses it to speak to the audience of his day, which would be both Jews and Greeks. Both Jews and Greeks. Now, what would a Jew be thinking when John uses this word logos? Well, in the Old Testament, it's very interesting. This word Logos, or the word, is emphasized a lot. Think about, go back to Genesis with me. In creation, what happens? God doesn't just will creation into existence. What does he do? He speaks it. And God said, let there be light. And God said, and God said, and God said. (laughs) He doesn't just will creation. He could have done that. But he speaks creation. So there's this connection between the word of God and the power, the creative power of God. And so we see that communicated in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament. Really, think about the prophets. What did they bring to the people? They brought the word of the Lord. They brought the word of the Lord, which was not the word of man. It came from man, but it ultimately was the word of the Lord. It was God's revelation to his people. It was divine speech. And so this theme of the word, the Logos, would have been familiar to the Jews of that time. And it also would have been familiar to the Greeks. There was, in Greek thought, in philosophy, there was this idea that there was this rational principle (laughs) that held the universe together, that made things work. Why does 2 plus 2 equal 4? They would say the Logos. There's this rational principle that why, why do things work? Why is there a created order? The Greeks would have gone to philosophy and they would have said there's this creative order called the Logos. So there's reason that John is using this word Logos here. Not only referring to divine speech, but ultimately it's actually to confront both the Jew and the Greek. Because the Jew would have been okay with this word, this divine speech of God, but they would not have understand, understood what John says in verse 14 where he says the word took on flesh. They would have had a big problem with that. And same thing for the Greek. The Greek would have been great with this principle of the word, but not the person of the word. This personal person, the word. They would have had a big problem with that. So John is using this language, kind of drawing these people in, but ultimately confronting them and showing them the truth of what we know the scriptures to teach, that this word is a person, that this word takes on flesh, this person is, this word is the Son of God. And so we see that in the first section. We've seen the eternal word. And then we turn to the second clause, or the second section, and it says this. And the Word was with God. And the Word was with God. That we've seen that the Word is eternal, uncreated, divine speech. And now we see that the Word is not only eternal, but is with God. Is with God. So what does this word with mean? Now, it doesn't come across in the English translation as much, but in Greek, this word with is Communion. It is face-to-face communion, relationship. It's not side-by-side. It's the most intimate form of communion you can have. It's face-to-face. It is deep, intimate communion. Eternal communion is what we see communicated 
when John says, and the word was with God. So not only is the word eternal, but has been in eternal communion with God. That this word, whatever it is, John hasn't really made that clear yet, that this word is eternally in communion with God. But there's something else kind of communicated here that might not be as clear, and that John is making a distinction. John is making a distinction between the word and God. He's making a distinction between the word and God. And this is where we get to the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity. That John here is giving us the Trinitarian doctrine. Not all of it is revealed right here. And people want a proof text to go prove the doctrine of the Trinity. Prove the doctrine of the Trinity. It's really the sum of God's revelation. But we see part of it revealed here. And it's interesting if you think about it this morning. What have we done so far? We've sung about the Trinity. Holy, holy, holy. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. We've prayed a Trinitarian prayer, right? All of our prayers of confession are Trinitarian prayer. We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And we've also confessed the Trinity in our confession of faith. We've confessed Father, Son, and Spirit. So we're familiar with these things. We're familiar with the doctrine of the Trinity, and we've confessed it. We've sung about it. We've prayed this Trinitarian prayer, but... What is this? (laughs) If somebody asked you, what is the Trinity? What would you say? What would your answer be? And there's two things that are important to remember. The first is that there is one God. That there is one God. The Old Testament makes this clear. The New Testament makes this clear. There's one God. Isaiah 43.10 There is no God before me, neither shall there be after me. I am the first, I am the last I know of no other God. There's one God. The Shema, the great chant that the Israelites would say is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. This is the truth of the scriptures. There's not multiple gods. There's not three gods. There's not two gods. There's one God in Old and New Testament. And so... Many people believe this, Jews believe this, Muslims believe this. This is called monotheism, one God. But we are Trinitarian. We believe in the Trinity, which is one God. And the second point is there are three persons in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are co-equal, co-eternal. That's fancy ways of just saying there's not three gods, (laughs) And they are not each other. There's lots more complicated things we can say, but that will suffice for this morning. That the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and so on and so forth. But they are God. Father, Son, and Spirit. One God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. And this is usually where people get confused, right? Because we we are human and we want to try to put our hands on this doctrine. And so we come up with analogies like an egg. (laughs) The Trinity is like an egg, is what some people will say. There's a shell, there's a yolk, and there's a white. And that's, that's not, that doesn't accurately communicate the doctrine of the Trinity. That's sort of um, partialism. Or you could say, well, some people might say, well, the Trinity is like water. Water, there comes in steam, ice, and liquid. But that's modalism. <laughs> or the, the Trinity is like the sun. There's the sun, there's the rays that come off the sun, and then there's the heat from the sun. 
That's a different error. And so all these ways of trying to explain the Trinity, these analogies, fail at some point. Because they are communicating something that's not true about God. And so we want to do this. We want to try to put an analogy to it. But the truth is there is no analogy that can perfectly summarize the doctrine of the Trinity. And so even though we cannot fully comprehend it, we at the end of the day must confess that there is one God and Scripture reveals that he is three persons. That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all God, co-equal, co-eternal. And so you might say, what does this have to do with John 1.1? (laughs) John is making a distinction between the persons of the Trinity. He's saying that this word that was in the beginning, that was eternal, was with God, distinct from the Father. So the Father is not the Son, and that's what John is trying to communicate here in John 1.1, in the second clause. And so we get to the third clause. So we have so far, in the beginning was the Word. We have the eternal Word. Second clause we have, and the Word was with God, showing that the Word was in eternal communion with God, yet distinct from the Father. And finally, John says this, and the Word was God. And the Word was God. So we finally see that this Word that was eternal, that was in eternal communion with God, is eternally God. Is eternally God. That this one that was with God in the beginning is also God. That this one that was with God is also God. That this eternal word is eternally God. And this is where people say no. This is where people say no. I can get with the eternal part. I can get with this being with God. But people say no. This word cannot be God. The Unitarians say no. He's not God. The Arians say he was a created being. The Jehovah's Witnesses say, they add to it and they say, he was a God. The Jews and the Muslims are okay with Christ being a prophet, but not God. All these other religions, all these other beliefs are great with everything, except this part, where the word is God. And so... We have to ask ourselves this question. Why is this important? Why is John taking the time to communicate this? He's using simple language. These are all words that a three-year-old can read. Maybe not a three-year-old. Five-year-old, right? The word was with God. But he's communicating deep and profound truth. And this is why John 1.1 is so important. It's because so many people come in and add to John 1.1 and try to make it mean something that it doesn't. And when we see what John is saying here, it is foundational to what it is to be a Christian. To believe that the Word was eternally God. That this Word that's going to take on flesh, be born of a virgin, is God. Fully God and fully man. And this is foundational to what it means to be a Christian, to be orthodox, to be a believer. And as we've said, even though this is mysterious, and we'll get into this more as we go through John's Gospel, how can God take on flesh? All these questions that we have. Even though there is great mystery here, how can one God be in three persons? 
even though we can't fully comprehend it, we're called to confess it because it's what the scriptures say. And we're to believe, we're to have faith because it's the foundation of our faith that God has spoken through the Apostle John and revealed truths about himself so that we might believe and that by believing we might have life. And that's why John wrote. This is not just theological babble we have in John 1.1. 1, 1. Right? We, someone, many of us have memorized it. We can say it in our sleep. In the beginning was the word blah, 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 blah. It's not just theological babble. It's so that we might believe. So we might have life. And as we read this morning in John chapter 8, Jesus says these words. For I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am you will die in your sins. What Jesus is saying there is unless you believe that I am, that word in the Greek is ego I me, I am, which is a translation of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying unless you believe that I am God, you will die in your sins. So we see how John 1.1, what John is saying, that this word is God, is vitally important to our salvation. That these other religions, these other beliefs, they fall short. We must confess that Christ is God and that that's the only way we can be saved from our sins. Why? Because this word took on flesh. And as 1 Peter 3 says, that Christ suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. We need a Savior that is not only fully man, but fully God. So that we might be brought to God. Communion with Him. And I love what our confession says about this doctrine, not only of the deity of Christ, but of the Trinity. Because I think for some of us, if we're honest, we come away thinking, okay, Kendall just got up there and talked about this doctrine of the Trinity. What does that have to do with my life? What does that mean for me? Our confession says that the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our communion with God and our comfortable dependence on Him. What does that mean? That the foundation of the Trinity is the foundation of our communion with God. How can we know we have communion with God? Father, Son, and Spirit. And I think for a lot of us in this room, if we're honest, we're struggling We're struggling in our day-to-day life. Maybe you have kids that won't listen (laughs) and you want to pull your hair out or their hair (laughs) and you're just frustrated to no end and it causes us to get angry and to be short and to sin. Or maybe you have a relationship in your life that only causes pain for you and for that person and it causes us to sin and we struggle with that relationship. Or maybe it's sin in your own life, a sin struggle in your own life that is causing you to doubt, to have serious questions about the faith, about what you believe. And this doctrine of the Trinity can feel ethereal, can feel out there. But when we see how practical it is, that it's the foundation of our communion with God, it changes everything. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever meditated on the triune God and felt comfort from that? That the Father, from before time began planned redemption for his people. 
that he sent his son to accomplish that redemption. The perfect son of God taking on flesh, the word, taking on flesh and dying for sinners. And that he sent his spirit to apply the benefits of redemption for God's people, to sanctify us, to convict us of our sin that that we struggle with, and to conform us into the image of Christ. That this doctrine of the Trinity is not just puffed up knowledge. And so I think for some of us, maybe we have weak consciousness, maybe we're struggling with our sin, we need to run <laughs> to Christ and to the triune God because there's life there. And maybe some of us are proud this morning and we think that we can come to God on our own works. We know these doctrines and so we just think, that's what makes me right before God. It's not. Pride is deadly. We're to confess our sin and we're to humble ourselves before a holy God. So this morning, as we step back from John chapter 1, may we remember these things. May we remember this word that was in the beginning, the great Son of God who took on flesh for us and for our salvation. And may we take time each day, hopefully, to think about the triune God and remember what he's done for us and for our salvation. And so as we end the service this morning, let's, let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for, for John 1, for, for sending the word, the Logos, who in these last days you have spoken to us with finality. We don't have to question what is your will, what is your way, how do I live the Christian life. You've spoken to us and you've sent the word of God, Christ, the Son of God, to take on flesh to die in the place of sinners so that we might have life, so that we might believe and so that by faith we might be made right with you, Lord. Help us. We are weak. We are weary sinners and we need a great Savior who is not only man but is also God, nothing less. And where we do not understand this, Lord, help us to confess it, to believe it, and to trust, and to see these things in your word, Lord. We need your help. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. 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 Each week, um, we come to the Lord's Supper where we're reminded that the Son of God was not just sent, but took on flesh, took on our nature with all of its properties, yet without sin. And his body was broken, his blood was spilled, so that we might be made right with God. So that our sin might be covered, our iniquity might be atoned for. And we're reminded each week that this is a means of grace. It's not just a memory, it's much more than that. (laughs) It's much more than that. So we look back, yes, but we proclaim right now and we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where... As Daryl spoke about, we will be resurrected and with God forever. And so if you're not a Christian, if you haven't professed faith in Christ, if you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this, this supper means nothing to you. And Paul warns us to discern the body, to examine ourselves, to see whether we're in the faith, to confess our sins, 
But as we say each week, we're not to despair only, but we're to run to Christ. We're to run to the gospel. And in doing that, remember that this is a means of grace. It's to assure us of our salvation. It's a visible word of Christ's covenant promises to us. And so we're reminded of our Lord's words on the night he was betrayed. He took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And every time you take the bread and take the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that's what we're doing. We're awaiting the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're called to do this, to remember that and to believe. So come this morning as you're able. um, Take the elements back to your seat and we will um, take them together. that this is a meal not for the strong but for the weak that we're weak and we need great grace so each week we take the bread we remember and we believe that Christ's body was broken for us for the forgiveness of all of our sins and in the same way we take the cup of wine and we take and we remember and we believe that the blood of Christ was shed so that our sin might be forgiven. Amen. If you want to stand with me this morning, we'll respond by singing hymn number 216. Solid rock.
Stand with me for hymn number 13. Thank <laughs> you. 